What is up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Nancy Davis. Nancy is the fund manager for the IVAL and BNDD ETFs that are both listed on the New York Stock Exchange. The IVAL ETF is an inflation hedge, started in 2019, and now has seen some stuff to say the least. So we get into her background, uh, a little bit about the IVAL ETF inflation and that great, interesting macro talk. She joined me on Tuesday the 13th, right as the August CPI numbers printed. So we went in and talked a little bit about that as well. But as always, as always, ladies and gents, this is not financial advice. So please, please, please do not take it as financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly for entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as financial advice. Everything you hear on this podcast is both mine and Nancy's opinion and our opinion only. So let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. But first, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Inverse. Inverse is a social and collaborative investment research platform. Many new companies like Robinhood have increased the access to financial markets. Well, Inverse is increasing the access to high-quality investment research and discussion. The entire platform is built around top-notch data and tools to help you analyze over 10,000 stocks and ETFs seamlessly. It's all embedded into the platform. And in the coming weeks, you'll be able to link your brokerage account, share your portfolio to maximize that credibility when you're writing about those various stocks and ETFs and presenting your theses, both bullish and bearish. And also, it'll allow you access to clean your portfolio with their various analytics tools. I myself have been using Inverse for quite some time now, and I absolutely love it. So come join me and follow me on Inverse at Green Candle IT and join the Green Candle Investments group there. And we can interact, post your ideas and podcasts and what have you there. And we can all have a nice discussion around the financial markets. Now, let's get into the episode. What is up, everybody? I've got a very, very special guest for us today on the Macro Insights Podcast, and that is Nancy Davis. Nancy is the uh, per- portfolio manager for IVAL um, and the BNDD ETFs, both listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And she's been in around the Twitter spaces and everything like that, and also on CB- CNBC. So she's been in a lot of places, and I'm very, very happy to welcome her onto the Macro Insights Podcast. So Nancy, how are we doing today? Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm uh, really enjoying being uh, being part of the Twitter community. So that's how we connected. And it's, it's pretty awesome. I was really late to join Twitter. I only recently joined, but I'm, I'm glad I, I made it there finally. Better late than never, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the Twitter spaces and that whole kind of development of everything is is really awesome because, you know, we get to have conversations with people like you 
um, you know, who, who, you know, maybe the average Joe like me that doesn't really get that kind of access normally. So, uh, but let's take it back a little bit. Let's t- tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of how you got started in this world and, uh, you know, how you got to where you're at today. Yeah. I mean, how far back would you like to go? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, yeah, I was very awkward in middle school. I think I was a super nerd. <laughs> no, just kidding. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, is it is it something that you kind of saw like maybe in your upbringing, like, you know, whether it was like family, close family, friends or something like that, that kind of got you interested in investing? And, you know, there's something that, that you could kind of point back to that kind of, uh, I guess, sparked the interest as far as like the financial markets go and, and everything like that? Well, definitely not for my family. Um, I think if you probably asked my mother what I do right now, she would say, I was an international accountant, you know, she's no idea. My parents have no idea what I do. I don't think um, for the most part. And definitely I had nobody, um, no one in my family was in the business. You know, I didn't grow up around uh, investing or anything to do with my day-to-day life. So it was just something, a passion I found, I guess, kind of on my own, but it was really as a student that I sort of got into it. Yeah. So you kind of, uh, I guess, found the degree and uh, or that program in school and kind of just led you on to being where you're at today. Um, so, you know, how did you, you know, get to become this uh, the fund manager of these two ETFs? Um, did you kind of have like an earlier start, you know, uh, at another firm or something like that? And then that kind of led you to decide that you wanted and, like, you know, something while you were at that firm kind of uh, led you to, you know, wanting to start these two ETFs? Yeah, no, definitely. I um I started my career at Goldman Sachs, and so I was at Goldman for nearly ten years, and um, so that was sort of where I cut my teeth, so to speak, and learned the industry, um, learned about investing, and um, then I started my own firm. I guess it was in 2013, so it's been nine plus years that I've been working for myself at my own firm, building my team, building my organization. And then when I started, uh, you know, our ETFs, it was really just wanting to better client outcomes and kind of give more choices in the asset management world. I just felt like there were so many, everybody does the same thing, right? I felt like everybody's like doing exactly the same portfolio, like plus or minus a benchmark. And I really wanted to give investors more choices. And so I decided to, to embrace this, this technology, which is active ETFs. And just like Twitter, I was a little late to the community. I wasn't an ETF person before we started our own ETFs, but I do think they're a really cool technology and a great fund, a commingled fund, but it's a listed instrument. So yeah, it was a, kind of just an innovation that we had. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned it a little bit already, but, you know, the Eyeball ETF is one of them that, that kind of, uh, you know, that, that really interests me in like a kind of a time like this. So, um, you know, the description that, that you guys have on the website is that it's an interest rate and volatility and inflation hedge ETF. Um, and what I think is super interesting about this is that it started in 2019. So kind of all before the craziness happened. 
So, uh, you know, what was the motivation to kind of start this in 2019? Uh, I know you already kind of mentioned the little, you know, uh, giving investors a uh, different option. But, you know, was there something that you kind of uh, maybe saw coming or maybe some demand in the market for more of an inflation hedge during that time? Yeah, no, definitely in 2019, nobody was talking about inflation. No one cared about inflation. I um, I created the, the fund because I really when I started my career at Goldman, um, that was right around the time that the U.S. Treasury invented the, uh, the inflation protected bond market. So sometimes they're called TIPS, which are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. That's an acronym. And I remember being, you know, a young trader and just thinking, wow, this is like such a such a bad product. <laughs> this is not going to work. Um, there are so many limitations with, you know, the only measure that goes into calculating tips is the consumer price index. And I was like, that's, you know, nobody would ever buy like to compare it to equities, you know, the Dow Jones index or the S&P 500 index. So I was like, their inflation is so big and so hard to measure. I wanted to give investors that core, you know, tips portfolio, but then try to fix the issues with tips. Um, one was only CPI is linked to TIPS. And number two, um, TIPS are bonds, right? So like all bonds, um, as real yields go higher, TIPS will lose money based on their duration. So I wanted, it was really more of just like saying, this is an instrument that has some problems and I think we can fix it and make it make it a better potential outcome for clients. So that was sort of the motivation, but it wasn't like we saw I didn't have a crystal ball and know that the pandemic was coming or that we were going to have inflation at 40 year highs. I just knew that a lot of investors might not. It, it's one of those strategies that it's like in the name, but it might not actually work. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, I think that's awesome that, you know, you guys kind of started it and, you know, you almost get like kind of like a use case out of it, like almost immediately, whether that's good or bad. I don't I don't really know. But, uh, you know, obviously the world has changed quite a bit since 2019, you know, with with pandemic and rapid uh, inflation and, and, you know, everything which every which direction. And we'll kind of get into a little bit of the macro a little bit later. But have you kind of seen the response and the demand, uh, the response increase for eyeball and kind of like the demand for this product? Um, you know, because obviously inflation's all over the news and everything like that. Are you kind of seeing, uh, I guess, more people kind of, you know, come to you with questions, whether about eyeball and kind of, uh, you know, a little bit more discussion behind it? You know, it's interesting because I think the consensus right now, at least in the investment community, is that inflation is going to fall. So as strange as it is, even though we have inflation, you know, realized inflation at 40 year highs, the consensus is in the market is definitely that inflation will be falling. And it's just a question of, you know, how quickly people think inflation is going to fall. So it's it's not as hot of a topic as you would think, because I feel like a lot of the consensus is for slowing inflation um, with market participants. Yeah, and so I, I think that's super interesting that you bring that up, and we'll we'll get into CPI right now because you know as as we're recording this, it's the thirteenth of September. So CPI for the month of August was released this morning uh, at eight point three year eight point three percent year over year. 
And some of the alarming numbers that I saw in the basket of goods were fuel and oil were up 68.8%, energy up 19.8, so nearly 20, new vehicles up 10%, and food up 11%. So, you know, with even though, you know, the market participants are kind of seeing are kind of, uh, you know, I guess, predicting that that inflation is going to go down. Do you kind of see that happening and that we've already kind of peaked at the top? Or do you think that, you know, um, you know, obviously you don't have a crystal ball or anything like that. But do you kind of uh, see that the, the way that the market's reacting makes sense? Yeah, no, I don't think I think there's probably the biggest divide ever between what's happening in like real life versus what the financial markets are pricing in. Um, it's a huge disconnect, probably the biggest in my career that I've seen. Um, you know, so what's going on right now is that everybody in the financial markets is very complacent that the Fed hiking rates is going to kill inflation. So it's sort of this weird dynamic right now where the Fed has been hiking rates more rate hikes are priced in this year, um, already already into expectations. And the markets are saying, all right, the Fed is going to hike rates and that's going to dramatically kill inflation. Um, so like even right now, you know, today's CPI print at 8.3, the one year break even, which is a measure of where the one year um, inflation protected bonds are relative to nominal bonds, which are regular treasuries, it's 2.3. 2.4, right? So just not even 25 basis points over 2%. And so I think that's really shocking to a lot of people. And it's great that you have, you know, this, this podcast so we can help educate people because although realize inflation is at 40 year highs, future inflation expectations, it's just like all markets trade off of expectations, right? It's like the same, same principles apply to all markets, whether you're talking about you know, think about a company, like if you're just talking about equities, just to keep it simple, a company maybe, you know, misses earnings, right? But it's higher than expectations and then the stock trades up or vice versa. So it's all about what's priced in and what expectations are. And right now, even though realized inflation is still, you know, close to 40 year highs, future inflation expectations, even in the next year are very, very well contained. So I think that's probably an opportunity for investors because owning inflation expectations in the future is actually pretty cheaply priced. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's really interesting. Your point there that you've, you know, you see it's probably the biggest disconnect between, you know, what the market is telling us and, you know, actual, you know, real life, what's, what's kind of going on here. So, um, you know, like, I guess, how does that change or how do, how do people fix that? You know, is that, is, is the market just always going to be kind of, uh, I guess a little bit variable in that, in that sense where it's like, okay, it's not, not necessarily connected to, to what's going on because, you know, like you said, it is kind of based off like future projections. Well, you know, the market always, that's where, you know, expectations are in the future, but markets are often wrong, you know, so that's why we have surprises, like even the, the bond markets and the rate markets in 2000, the end of 2018, were expecting the Fed to hike three times in 2019, and they actually ended up cutting three times. So it's not like the market has a crystal ball, it's just showing you where consensus is. 
and consensus now is that inflation is going to dramatically fall in the future. And that to me is a pretty compelling opportunity because in 2019, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-inflation, we created, uh, you know, this inflation protected bond fund. Then we actually have had inflation, but future inflation expectations are incredibly low right now. And that, that I think is the opportunity for investors. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely think, you know, there's always going to be some sort of opportunity for investors in the market, no matter how crazy of times that we're kind of in. Um, but, you know, on the note of like the overall macro and, and inflation, you know, I kind of see it more as like a supply side inflation where raising rates and, and doing things like that might actually kind of hurt inflation um, in the long run, because a lot of these uh, supplies uh, chain issues that we've had uh, are coming from companies that, you know, have reliance on, you know, getting access to capital to kind of develop and, and build some of these things, whether you see, you know, we, we've seen the chip shortage and now we're kind of seeing almost like an energy crisis in Europe going on. So do you do you kind of think that the uh, Fed raising rates will actually kind of hurt in the long term? Or do you think like, you know, they're kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place and this is kind of the only card they have to pull? Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's the only card they have to pull. I feel like it's the only card that they have been pulling, which I think is very surprising to me. But I also think, you know, just being very pragmatic, we are you know, it's the middle of September, midterms are around the corner, and their bazooka, so to speak, is a balance sheet. And they've been very gingerly walking around, you know, caps, and then we're going to increase caps. So it's been very delicate so far, the whole balance sheet reduction. But I feel like they, they could do a lot more um, without just hiking policy rates. Um, and they really haven't done that yet. So I think it's it's very interesting. It's like the Fed keeps, you know, everything is about rate hikes right now and not about other other monetary policy tools. Well, what other monetary policy <laughs> tools do you kind of think that they could pull? Uh, because like, you know, I like, you know, I, I'm kind of, uh, I guess, you know, I'm not necessarily in this world. I, I do obviously post content and do all that kind of stuff around it. And I get to have the opportunity to, to speak to people like yourself, um, you know, who are been working in this space and, and doing a lot of that other stuff uh, for, for quite some quite some time. But it seems like the only thing that I hear people talking about, like it's is just raising rates, like that's their only option. So, what are some of the other potential like monetary policies that are or monetary cards that they can pull to kind of help with this inflation? Well, number one, you know, the balance sheet is ginormous. Um, they're just very delicately starting to let some of the bonds mature and mortgages mature in the month of September. They've doubled the caps, but the caps are still really tiny compared to the size of um, the SOMA holdings, which is what the Fed purchased in their QB purchases on their balance sheet. Um, so in my uh you know, I'm new to Twitter, relatively new, so I don't have a very long tweet history. But in my feed, there are all these great links to the SOMA holdings. Um, it's all public. You just have to know where to find the information. So that can be a resource to some of your audience um, as they're looking to see what, what I'm talking about and what the numbers are. But they have barely started to, to do anything there. Um, so I think they could definitely do more there. 
And I think they could also try to, you know, use other forms of, you know, just hiking policy rates is not doing it, right? It's just kind of killing killing the economy, um, in my opinion, um, killing growth. And that's really what the rates market is pricing in is this really like disinflationary long-term environment, not in a, not in a good, healthy way, um, like in a bad way. So, and I think, you know, the, the labor market is still really tight, right? You have to get, you know, fix that. And then the supply side issues really have only gotten worse in 2022, whether you're looking at, you know, the geopolitical situation in Europe or in other places in the world, like things have only gotten worse, not better, but inflation expectations have fallen dramatically because everybody consensus is in the rates market that the Fed hiking rates is going to kill inflation. And that's where I think it's an opportunity for investors to actually add inflation protection outside of commodities. I think that's one of the things I really try to help people think about is that you look, the inflation protected bond market is new. It's a new market. It only started in the late 90s. The rate derivative markets didn't really even start until the 2000s. So a lot of investors look at the 70s because that was the last period of high inflation. And then they look at, you know, various, I'd say, consensus things that worked in the 70s. But I think it's very important to point out that the interest rate derivative and the inflation protected bond markets, they didn't exist back then. <laughs> so um, I feel like you have a lot of consensus money going into what worked in the 70s and not thinking about what could work in the future. Yeah, and it seems like we have a lot of uncertainty, like you mentioned a little, a little bit in in the future, right? And we we don't we haven't really seen anything like this kind of in in the modern time, so to speak, where you know we we got um, you know obviously the Russia Ukraine conflict, we have the potential of the China Taiwan conflict uh, that seems to be you know, inching closer by the day, or maybe that's just a, a Twitter over uh, dr- dramatization. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have, you know, like the, the growing energy crisis in Europe. So, um, you know, as far as like investments go in the United States, like how much does, uh, you know, what's going on into Europe kind of play into the inflation that's going on in the United States? Um, does it play a, a major role or, um, you know, kind of as this global economy uh, is kind of, uh, you know, more connected now than it ever has been? Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely in the camp like this is, you know, we're all on the same planet. We're all experiencing the same supply side disruptions, the same, you know, challenges as a result of things uh, that are pandemic related and geopolitical um, and the labor market. So everybody all around the world, we're experiencing inflation. It's not just a U.S. thing. And a lot of things that are outside the U.S. are influencing and putting, in my opinion, more pressure on inflation, but that's where the 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 weird relationship happens that even though it seems like it should be moving higher, it's actually been moving lower in terms of future inflation expectations. So that's that's like any market, you know, you always want to buy low, sell high. And I think that presents an opportunity for for investors because the market is very complacent right now that a the fed's going to hike rates aggressively you know we have um I just peek at my bloomberg screen 185 basis points of additional hikes priced in in the next you know 
three and a half months before the end of 2022. And then the market is very complacent that those Fed hikes are going to kill inflation. And you can see that even like simple things like the one year break even being, uh, you know, it's under two and a quarter today, which is, uh, you know, kind of bizarre, right? When we have, you know, even if you think CPI is going to fall and you think inflation is going to fall, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a big fall, right? In a short amount of time. So. Yeah. So, you know, I guess what are some of the potential con consequences for kind of doing this shock to the economy? Because obviously, you know, raising rates that dramatically that quickly, uh, you know, obviously it's not going to be something that's kind of smooth sailing. So we've seen, you know, a lot of volatility in the past couple of years where, where, you know, you had the, the massive amounts of stimulus and other things like that, obviously the money printing and kind of like the global economy, you know, shutting down and opening up a little bit and, and doing all that stuff. So, you know, what are some of the, you know, I, I know Powell has kind of said that um, uh, that unemployment going up would uh, not be considered as success, but is also, you know, something that's kind of a consequence of raising these rates. So what are some of the other, you know, potential consequences or things that you could see happening with, uh, you know, dramatically raising these rates in such a short period of time? I mean, I found his Jackson Hole speech a little ridiculous, you know, like even the fact that a central banker would use the word pain. Um, I believe he said it twice. Um, in an eight-minute speech, um, it was pretty crazy. Um, so I think I think the thing that is concerning me the most is having a liquidity crisis, um, and also having the Fed kind of not be uh, aware of what they're doing. That you know, I feel like they keep. It's like you know, if you have a nail and you keep hitting it over and over and over again with a hammer, like it's not working. The policy hikes are not, you know, they're killing inflation expectations in the future, but they're not actually killing it in the real world. So I feel like this is a classic, you know, Wall Street versus Main Street situation where Wall Street believes the Fed's going to be successful. And you can see that in prices, but Main Street's still getting killed on a day to day basis because realized inflation is super high. And that disconnect between the two is where I think their opportunities for investors because future inflation expectations are super contained. They're very cheap. Yeah, they definitely are. And I think, you know, as far as like investors go and, and things like that, they, they can definitely find ways to kind of position themselves to, you know, help battle that, that future inflation and, you know, things like that. But it seems like, you know, it is pretty interesting now that uh, everybody kind of, uh, you know, pays attention, or maybe I'm just more plugged in a little bit now, but it seems like everybody's kind of hanging on Powell's every word. You know, you yeah. mentioned Jackson Hole speech. It seems like he can kind of go into a meeting and, uh, you know, either be, you know, super bullish or bearish or hawkish or what have you, like going forward. And, you know, the market will react directly based off what he says. Um, so, you, you know, do you kind of continue to see that trend that, you know, Powell just kind of has all this power that's kind of uh, almost pulling the strings, it seems like, of the financial markets? Or do you think that, you know, maybe eventually Wall Street will kind of get a little bit more, you know, I guess, connected to, to Main Street uh, as Main Street kind of continues to feel this inflationary pain? You know, I don't I don't know. Right. It's um, 
I'm really shocked by um, the confidence that the markets have given, you know, this is the same person who said inflation was transitory and that at the last Jackson Hole meeting, I think like every every broad reaching theme that he had and prediction for the future was completely wrong, right? Um, everything across the board. And then this recent Jackson Hole, like, you know, in August this year, it was eight minutes. He really said nothing new. And he only talked about like, you know, I uh, I was on... Uh, CNBC uh, earlier today for the CPI print when it came out and talk about live TV and like random things I think about. But in the moment, I was somebody asked me about Powell. I was like, it, it seemed like at Jackson Hole, he was like, he was like Ric Flair, you know, the, the wrestler. It was like all talk. I was just like, woo, you know, like really? He said, he said nothing, nothing new, um, nothing meaningful nothing data dependent and to say pain twice i just i felt you know personally i was like felt a real lack of confidence in his ability to understand what's actually going on and i think that's part of the problem is that you have a lot of the fed is run by academics um you have a lot of the the bureaucracy is run by people who've never been you know, in the private sector. And so I think you have this real disconnect between, you know, the bookmark people and the actual people, right? And so that's concerning. And I think, um, I think people should be worried. Um, I think there's no guarantee that the Fed hiking policy rates is going to reduce inflation. Um, there's no guarantee that the supply side issues are going to be alleviated. They're definitely priced in to calm down in the future. Um, you know, it's a really difficult time for a lot of investors. I think it's especially hard for people who are retiring, right? You know, I feel so badly for people like think about whatever industry you're in, you work your whole life to save for your retirement. And then here we go, and you probably have more bonds and stocks, right? So you've probably been killed on uh, on the bond portfolio this year. And then your day-to-day -day living costs are super high. And if you're retired, you're not benefiting from any kind of wage inflation, um, if you think about your, your personal balance sheet. So I think it's just a super tough time for investors, and it's really hard to have a lot of financial security right now um, with what what kind of environment we're going to be in the future. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you made a really interesting point there that, you know, a lot of the people in the Fed are more academics and they've kind of not been in the, you know, in the weeds of things, uh, you know, in the markets and everything like that. Everything they've worked on is kind of in theory. But, you know, you mentioned earlier that you, you go into a lot of these FinTwit spaces and, and other things like that. It seems like everybody is kind of uh, I guess on the Fed side where they think like, you know, just kind of rapidly increasing rates is, uh, you know, going to, to help this, um, the inflationary pressures go down. And obviously, you know, you're seeing kind of the consensus consensus in the market say that as well. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of seeing, you know, I guess a split where it's a lot of people that are in investments, um, and in the, the same world as you are, are kind of in the same boat as the Fed, but there's more of a, there's a little bit of a split. Whereas, you know, I see a lot of, you know, maybe more retail investors or people kind of just getting into it 
that are, uh, you know, more like, I guess, panicking more the main street where they're, they're kind of seeing that maybe the blood in the streets, like, you know, right next to them in their everyday lives. So, you know, how do you kind of, I, I guess, see that uh, the spread of information and kind of like the connection that, you know, platforms like Twitter, whether it's podcasts or other things like that kind of help, uh, I guess, does it, does it kind of help that conversation between main street and wall street, uh, you know, break that disconnect or do you still see like, you know, when you speak to some colleagues that they'll, they're, they're, they're just very, uh, I guess on the side of the fed and there's kind of no turning back. Well, I think that's a, the wonderful thing. And the reason that I recently joined Twitter and the reason I'm trying to be, you know, out there, you know, using these, these medium platforms to communicate to people, right. To like, let people know about what's going on in financial markets. Cause right now there's like reality and then there are financial markets and there's a huge disconnect between the two. And that's really important for investors to know about so they can make their own decision, but at least to be giving the data, giving the information so people can think for themselves and not, not just be, um, you know, with all the, the rest of the herd. Um, and I think that's a great thing about all the information that we have in today's environment that people do have access to so much information. I'm sure that's also a challenge on some side because you have to figure out what do you pay attention to? What do you listen to? How do you weed out the noise? Um, so it's probably a lot of noise, right? Because there's so much information. But I feel like that's all you can do is you can educate, try to point things out to people. Even, you know, retail investors are very smart. I don't think they're at all um, naive. And sometimes they have a much better feel on what's going on uh, in the real world than academics or the Wall Street types or probably even uh, some of some economists, you know. Um, so I think the nice thing is with all this, this information that people can think for themselves and decide, you know, on their own what the, what the future might be. And all you can do with the financial markets is say, this is what's priced in, right? And if your view is different than what's priced in, that's where the opportunity lies. In all in all asset classes. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I definitely think that's great. And, you know, obviously we got connected through Twitter. So I think that platform and, you know, other platforms where you can kind of have these discussions is great. Um, but I don't know if you saw the news today, but uh, Justin Trudeau in up in Canada announced that they're doing a four and a half billion dollar inflation relief package for low income earners. So essentially it's, it seems like it's going to be another stimulus kind of package um, that's going to be used to, to fight inflation. And so I, I feel like this is kind of along the lines with uh, you know, what we, what we saw earlier in uh, you know, 2020 where, you know, they, they kind of printed money or, or, you know, went through QE and that, that process to kind of give people that inflation relief uh, or not the, the COVID relief, um, and now they're going to do the same thing with inflation. Um, do you kind of, I guess, you know, foresee that potentially happening as well? And, you know, what are the, some of the potential consequences of just, you know, issuing more stimulus? Um, you know, obviously we saw like an initial run up, but now we're, we're facing some of the consequences now. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to make any political statements about, you know, decisions like that, but it does seem a little like, okay, there's, if inflation was a fire, 
and then you pour a bunch of gasoline on it um, doesn't really fix the problem, in my opinion. It's just probably going to make it worse in the long term. So, you know, it's it's very questionable. I think policymakers are very well-meaning, right? I don't think they're trying to create a financial crisis or, you know, um, cause problems. But I think a lot of these decisions are probably about buying votes and making people happy in the short term. And, you know, if you think about it, like, very simply, you know, everybody, I think, universally across all cultures, all religions, all countries, right, everybody wants better outcomes for their children, right? So we just close our eyes and we think about if we're giving out a bunch of money to fix, you know, a short-term problem, which is, you know, living, you're just creating more debt for your children and your children's children. So it's, I don't think that's a great long-term solution. And it makes me sad to hear these sorts of things happening because, you know, it's just, it's just kicking the can down the road. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you hundred percent and it seems like that's kind of been, uh, I guess the trend. Um, and it almost seems like it's because, you know, I, I don't, I don't know like any kind of way to, to kind of get around this and, and fix it because it seems like, you know, obviously every two years or four years, depending on where you're at in the United States, you know, uh, political system, it's everybody's kind of coming up for votes. So uh, you can't really do too much to change in those four years. Um, and they do a lot of, uh, you know, I, mean, I guess like short term fixes or maybe, you know, if they're, they're dealt a bad hand, they kind of, uh, you know, put a bandaid over it and just, yeah. keep, like you said, kicking the can down the road. Um, so, you know, I guess like, how do you, uh, you know, how, how do we kind of avoid this situation going forward? Obviously, you know, we, we can't, upend and change the full political system or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I guess, do you think that the the spread of infom- information that we're, we're kind of having like these discussions over, you know, Twitter spaces and things like that, do you think that the education and the average like retail investor is kind of starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, there's almost these like little levers that are being pulled to, um, you know, almost like you said, like kind of quote unquote by by votes uh, essentially with some of these policies and that they're kind of becoming more informed voters. And, you know, at the end of the day, the spread of information, everything like that is going to be more beneficial in the long run. Or do you kind of still see, uh, I guess, you know, politics kind of politicking? Well, I'm sure politics will keep politicking, <laughs> but so to speak, I like that term. But I think the nice thing about having all of this information, whether it's Twitter, or, you know, your YouTube channel or your podcast is people can really think for themselves. And I think that is where I help. I want to help educate people about like realized inflation is at 40 year highs, but future inflation expectations are incredibly contained. And that is, I think, an opportunity because no matter what industry you're in, right, it doesn't matter if you're a truck driver or you're a dental hygienist or, you know, if you're a Wall Streeter, right? It doesn't matter. Everybody has work and they have savings. And the reason they're saving is for retirement. And so to me, I think that's where having some part of a portfolio, financial portfolio exposed to inflation 
is pretty important. And it actually happens to be pretty cheap now too, because inflation expectations in the future are so far below realized. Um, so I think I think it's it's a great opportunity to help educate people so they see what's priced in because you could be like the biggest deflationist in the world, right? And you could have like 90% of your portfolio positioned that way, but what if you're wrong, right? And that's that's where I think people are kind of overthinking it about whether whether inflation is going to go higher or lower. To me, it's not really a trade because we live in a real world, right? This is not this is not a Barbie world, right? It's a real world, and we have real cost of living, a real amount of savings. Um, in the United States, we've been very fortunate because the rest of the world has looked so much worse compared to the U.S. So the dollar has been really strong, but like. You know, there's no guarantee in the future how things are going to play out. So I do think it's a good time just to be diversified. So you're not making a single bet with your savings, your retirement, your financial freedom. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, people are kind of uh, trying to find uh, ways to get educated and kind of find people, you know, that they can talk to, discuss these things and and do their own research to kind of... Uh, yeah, like you said, protect themselves and, and grow their wealth and, uh, you know, protect that the, the finances that they, they work so hard to gain. And, uh, you know, on that note, uh, you know, like you, we've mentioned it a couple of times that you recently joined Twitter. Um, so how has the response been since you've joined Twitter and kind of going through some of these uh, discussions and other things like that? And how have you enjoyed your, uh, your time at Nova and the Twitterverse? <sighs> Well, I definitely, um, I really felt very welcome to, uh, by the Twitter community. It's like, uh, you know, I've heard horror stories, right? Like a lot of people say what terrible experiences they have on social media and how it's so bad for, you know, but knock on wood finger, I hope I don't jinx myself, but so far people have been very um, welcoming and warm and, you know, I try to really help people and, you know, I spent, one weekend just defining all the greek jargon terms out there like just like totally for fun you know i'm like drinking my uh you know seltzer spritzers all weekend by the pool and just like hammering out you know this is this this is, might be helpful so i've had i'm i'm keeping it light but i'm trying to have a lot of fun with it i uh you know i remember one time i took like a picture of something I was drinking or eating and putting it up and someone was like, please don't be one of those people who's taking pictures of what they eat or drink and put it on Twitter. But I don't know, I'm just experimenting. I don't really have like a plan necessarily about how I'm approaching it, but I'm just, I'm doing it to have fun and to connect with people and to meet new people like you and help, help educate people. So, um, but it's definitely been a learning experience and um and a lot of fun so far i've enjoyed it yeah i mean i think it's a, it's a great platform and i think you know uh, it helps like i think almost the connection between you know uh portfolio managers and just the average retail investors and, and the things like that too because you know retail investors can can talk to retail investors uh till they're blue in the face and, and figure things out but you know there's something that about being in the business and and, uh, you know, running your own portfolio and kind of working in that world for some time that that you learn that you just can't learn from, you know, doing research or whether it's, 
Twitter threads or other things like that too. So, um, you know, are you, are you kind of, uh, I guess, finding the response from, from retail pretty, pretty good and pretty positive. And, uh, are you surprised that a, a lot of, uh, your colleagues are also on Twitter, a, a lot of portfolio managers getting in there and doing all these Twitter spaces and things like that? You know, it, it's interesting. Like I don't, I don't talk to, um, like in my day-to-day job, a lot of retail investors, you know, obviously if someone we're happy to talk to whoever, you know, wants, but a lot of people, most of the people that I talk to are on the institutional side or financial professionals. And then on the Twitter spaces, you have no idea who's joining, right? It's like, it's totally open, which is really cool. Um, and so I think a lot of people have, you know, these anonymous names. So it's kind of hard to know who's, who's joining like a lot of times. And so I just try to keep it I try to not use jargon. I try to keep it simple and actually speak in English and try to actually say what I mean and not, you know, it's very financial professionals were like, we can get really lazy, right? And use terminology that a lot of people don't understand. But I try my best to, even if I use a terminology, sometimes when I talk, at least go back in my in my tweet feed and like define things just so people can have kind of I don't want to say like a glossary, but a way to like know when I'm talking about like convexity, what the heck does that mean? Or when I'm talking about duration, what is that? Or when I talk about gamma, like what does that mean? So, uh, you know, nobody's perfect. And it's definitely very easy to use a lot of the financial jargon. And I find sometimes, you know, I'll be on a space talking about a market that I might not know a lot about. You know, the cool thing is there are a lot of different groups within the Twitter community. And I always find it hard when you don't know the jargon of that industry and people are using words to describe something and you don't know what the words mean. So I'm trying my best to be um, contribute in a positive way and help people better their outcomes or at least put the information out there for them to better their outcomes. But it's um, it's definitely it's still new for me. I, I guess I've been on it for a couple months now. Um, and I'm looking forward to um, getting more more ingrained in the community. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I look forward to you continuing to join and continuing to kind of uh, spread your knowledge and, and things like that in the Twitter spaces and Twitter community, because obviously, uh, I think, uh, you know, you might have joined one of the, one of my spaces like when and you're early on in your Twitter journey, maybe your first couple weeks in. It was uh, mm-hmm. brought in by Deerpoint, who's uh, been a friend of the program for for quite some time. So, um, you know, I always appreciate you coming in and, and things like that. And uh now, I always wrap up by asking one final question. Um, so it can be long-winded, can be short-winded, whatever you kind of feel. But w- what is some advice that you would give to somebody who's kind of been sitting on the fence, uh, maybe has been like a little bit gun shy or been like listening to a lot of content or kind of uh, maybe following you or joining these Twitter spaces, but is kind of sitting on the sidelines and not really getting into the market. Uh, what would you? What advice would you give, um, you know, obviously – not uh, financial advice or anything like that, but somebody that is new to the financial market to kind of give them that push to get in and get invested? Well, there's a lot of information out there. So I think, you know, just being patient and being a student of the markets and learning from a lot of different people is really important. You know, obviously I'm, I'm a portfolio manager. I'm not a financial advisor, so I don't advise 
individuals um, or give financial advice like that. Um, and I'm pretty specialized with what I do. But I think the nice thing about having all this information, whether it's Twitter or other other mediums or platforms, there's so much information out there that you know you don't necessarily you have access to the whole world, right? There's there's so much information. It's just a matter of figuring out who you know. I think at the end of the day, everything in the asset management industry comes down to trust, right? Like if we can just break it all down, and I think it's a question of figuring out which you know places you trust for information. Um, and just going to those and getting a broad array of different views, right? Because as much as people love to be, you know, macro uh, know-it-alls on Twitter spaces, the reality is, is no one knows what's going to happen in the future, right? No one can predict those things. And even, you know, frankly, even if you had a crystal ball and you knew what monetary policy was going to be, you still might be totally wrong about how markets react. <laughs> so I think um, just having being really diversified is super important in these times. Um, having uh, lots of diversification, lots of different things in your portfolio that could work at different times. And, you know, I always like if everything in my portfolio is working and going up, say, all at the same time, I get worried, right? Because you don't want everything to be moving in the same direction. So I think that's one thing when you're putting together, again, I'm not a financial advisor, this is not financial advice, but if everything in your portfolio is moving in the same direction, you're probably not that diversified. Um, so you just have to be really careful out there and don't go by the name only um, really try to look under the hood and see see what's inside of what the exposures are. Yeah, those you made some great points there, so I really appreciate all that. And uh, yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, diversification in a time like this can kind of help you ride some of those swings, uh, whether it's up or down. And it seems mm -hmm. like uh, you know, on a day like today, I think everything uh, is red and very, very red uh, after uh, missing that that CPI print. But Nancy, you've been very generous with your time, thank so you. thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you tell everybody, you know, where where they can find you and where they can find some information on Eyeball and and all the ETFs. <laughs> well, I have, I guess, I after I created my Twitter handle realized that I created like a bot Twitter handle because I'm a double underscore. I didn't realize that was like a, a bot thing. So my my Twitter is Nancy double underscore Davis, that I am a real person, not a bot. <laughs> and uh, and uh, our website is out there um, for people who want to learn more about, we have two funds. We have a uh, the Eyeball ETF, which is the quadratic interest rate volatility and inflation hedge ETF. It's a big name. Um, and then we have BNDD, which is uh, our deflation fund. So, you know, it's uh, tools for investors to look at and there's lots of information out there, but definitely, you know, ask your financial advisor if it's appropriate for you, for those of you who are retail investors, because, you know, you have to read the prospectus and see, you know, because all investing involves risk. Yeah, for sure. And be sure to follow our Nancy double underscore Davis. <laughs> That's some good stuff out there. So thanks so much for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on in the future. Thank you. And I look forward to joining your spaces later today. So let's do it.